0: Uh, You might find an outline on the back of your service sheet which might be useful to you, it might not. If it's your thing to take notes then why not grab that uh, and do that. I wonder how you found, if you've been with us in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, I wonder how you found uh, the the studies we've done in it. Uh, 20 something weeks I think we've been here. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished uh, saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Jesus is the most astonishing teacher who ever lived. Here is a vast crowd, not just his disciples, but people passing by who've stopped to find out what all the commotion's about. Uh, people in a variety of positions in relation to Jesus. Uh, I guess much as we would be in this room this morning. Uh, some will be skeptical, some true believers, and others somewhere in between. It's as if the whole world is listening into Jesus. Uh, in microcosm And he astonishes them. Because he taught them as one who had authority, verse 29. That is, Jesus kept on teaching them, and they kept on being astonished at his teaching. Now, of course, we might be tempted to dismiss Jesus' audience as a bunch of ignorant peasants. There is, after all, nothing quite like a bit of chronological snobbery on a Sunday morning. Uh, These people, though, lived on the heritage of the Hebrews, the Greeks, and the Romans, the cultures of Aristotle, Seneca, and Paul. Uh, Many of these people would have been highly educated, I guess uh, much more educated than we are. It would be the height of arrogance to think that we're more sophisticated than some of Jesus' audience here. Uh, Certainly, the novelist uh, H.G. Wells thought Jesus' teaching astonishing. He says, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I, I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very centre of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Christ is the most unique person of history. No man can write a history of the human race without giving first and foremost place to the penniless teacher of Nazareth. What is it that makes Christ such a compelling person? To an atheist like Wells, or indeed to a secular Jew like Einstein, he also spoke. No man can deny the fact that Jesus existed, nor that his sayings are beautiful. Even if some of them have been said before, no one has expressed them so divinely as he. What is it that makes Jesus Christ so compelling? It is his teachings. So imagine you're part of the crowd listening into Jesus that day on the mountainside. Where do you stand? Are you one of his disciples gathered at his feet, lapping up every word? Are you somewhere in the middle of the crowd, the observer looking in, curious, but not yet persuaded? Are you the sceptic at the back of the crowd with the rotten fruit and veg, prepared to throw them at him the minute he puts a word out of line? Do you find Jesus, the way that history has done, to be the greatest teacher who ever lived? And more to the point, is that enough? Is it enough to think that Jesus' teachings are compelling? And if you find Jesus' teachings compelling, is it enough to believe that he is who he says he is? The Son of God. And is it therefore enough to believe that Jesus teaches with the authority of God? Is it enough to believe those things? Our passage this morning says it isn't. We'll see instead that if all we give to Jesus are platitudes, Jesus is God. Then we remain on the outside, on the wide road to destruction of verse 13. See, Jesus wants us to build our whole lives on his words. Of course, it's been suggested many times and in various ways that the church doesn't do that. That Christians are terrible at building their lives on Jesus' words, that we're not very interested in building our lives on Jesus' words. And so if you're somebody looking into Christianity, and perhaps that's been your experience of Christians you've met, you might be asking, why should I bother? Why should I build my life on Jesus' words when Christians are so universally terrible at it? And that brings us to our first point this morning, the unfruitfulness of false (coughs) believers. Mahatma Gandhi said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And the extension from that is, of course, if Christians don't bother doing what Jesus says, then why should I? But what are the options here? I guess one of the options would be that Gandhi just got Jesus wrong, as so many in our culture get Jesus wrong. It may be that the Christians he knew were faithful believers who were, uh, were speaking and living according to the words of Jesus, and Gandhi just got Jesus wrong. After all, Christianity is always countercultural in every uh, place and time. It may be that uh, Gandhi was offended by genuine Christianity, as many are. It's possible. But let's say that Gandhi had read his Bible reasonably well. And he met professing Christians who were not obeying the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and other we- other places. And what are the options? Well, perhaps he met real Christians. You've real Christians who were having a bad day. We've all done it. In fact, I guess many of us would confess that every day sort of feels like a bad day as a Christian. We stumble, we we trip up, we, we don't get it right. Jesus calls us, after all, in the Sermon on the Mount, to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, and we are anything but perfect. We know that as Christians, we won't be perfect until the day Jesus comes back to take us home, where we'll be made perfect like him because we'll see him as he is, from 1 John 3 see, Christians are flawed people. The church is is a hospital for the spiritually sick. We're not proud people. We know that we are uh, broken. And so perhaps Gandhi simply got the gospel wrong. He got that Jesus lived this perfect life, and he knows that he calls Christians to live a perfect life, but he sees that Christians don't live perfect lives, and he just doesn't understand that the gospel is about Jesus redeeming people who are imperfect, but who are trying to live for him. Maybe he's just got Jesus wrong. Maybe he's got the gospel wrong. But here's a third option. Perhaps Gandhi took offence at the gross immorality of professing Christians. Perhaps he looked at the lives of people whose whose lives were habitually vulgar, who had no interest in living the way Jesus called them to live. They took the title Christian, but they were not interested in being Christian. I guess such people as that are all through our culture, aren't they? The last census, 2011, 59.3% of the population ticked the box Christian on the census. 6.3% of the population go to church. So I guess you've got 53% of the population who call themselves Christians, who have no interest in what Jesus has to say. Of course, it's easy to point the finger outside the church at the people who claim to be Christian and never go to church. What about us in here? What about that 6.3%? who go to church regularly, how seriously do we take Jesus' teaching? For how many of that 6.3% is the word of God the touchstone for our lives? And when the arguments come up in church, in the wider church, between Christians about a point of teaching or a point of ethics, for how many is the word of God even a reference point? I think the numbers would frighten us. I would guess... Two-thirds, three-quarters, that's 6.3%. That would fail on that point. And so what Jesus says in verse 21 is frightening, I think. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So here we're not concerned about the world at large, are we? We're concerned about people who call Jesus Lord, Lord. It's repeated. It's a sign of deference. These are people who recognise that Jesus is God. These are people who recognise that. They're professing Christians. They're people who own the label, I'm a Christian. And notice too that what's at stake here is entering the kingdom of heaven. That's been uh, the, the bloodline that's run right through the Sermon on the Mount, hasn't it? You go right back to 5 verse 3. Yours is the kingdom, Jesus says. 5 verse 20. Enter the kingdom. At 6.33. Seek first the kingdom. It's been the theme running through the whole sermon. And here's the shock. Out of all the people who call themselves Christians, who who recognise that Jesus is indeed Lord, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's just tease the implication out here. Because I think it is radical And it's important for us. In our culture today, you can announce that you are whatever you want to be. You can be a 57-year-old man who thinks he's a 6-year-old girl, and that's okay. One or two wide-eyed expressions there. You've seen the articles. You can be a white woman who thinks she's a black woman and work for a minority rights organisation. That's also a true story. Identity is, you see, fluid, isn't it? I am who I say I am. Actually, there's only one person who gets to say that, Exodus 3, 14. And Jesus here has the cheek, the gall to tell us that your self-identification is not enough. Your claim to be a Christian is not enough, he says. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't make you one. Not everyone who says they're a Christian gets into God's kingdom. Because Jesus gets to tell us what it means to be a Christian, and Jesus gets to decide who gets into heaven. So who gets in? Jesus continues, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now let's be clear on a couple of things that Jesus isn't saying. He isn't saying there's only one person who does the will of my Father, there's only one person who gets into heaven. It's the, the one that represents the many. Nor is he saying that it's your deeds that get you into heaven. He's not saying that uh, we get saved by doing good things. That would be to contradict his own teaching in many places. Uh, Rather, Jesus here, as indeed Paul in his letters and James in his letter later, is drawing a perfect uh, uh, correlation, a connection, an inevitable connection between the true profession of the true believer and the true life of the true believer. We saw last week, didn't we, that a good tree will produce good fruit, that the person who has gone through the gate of faith in Jesus will also walk on the path of faith in Jesus, will live according to uh, faith in Jesus. And Jesus is here saying that on the last day, when he judges the living and the dead, uh, saying you're a Christian, but failing to live the life will prove that you were never one in the first place. And what's more shocking, I think, is verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Surely that's enough. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Notice that Jesus knowing you uh, is the equivalent of doing the Father's will in verse 21 notice too that these people are not idle people and we've been told by Jesus you must do the Father's will and here are people who are doing things that are good and prophecy is a good thing Matthew tells us that elsewhere And miracles casting out demons they're good things they're things that Jesus does in Matthew's gospel these are people who are doing lots of churchy things they're doing lots of things apparently for God in Jesus name they're doing these things And yet, Jesus says their doings are evil. You are evil doers. The test is not whether you do many impressive churchy things, but whether you do the Father's will. And these people, for all their churchiness, are not interested in doing the Father's will. In the mundane things, they do what they want. See, despite their churchy deeds, despite their dramatic, miracle-laden ministries, despite the fact they do everything in Jesus' name, they don't actually know Jesus. We saw, didn't we, last week in verses 15 to 20, that there are some prophets in Jesus' name who are false prophets. They come as wolves in sheep's clothing. shouldn't surprise us that there are people who do other ministries as wolves in sheep's clothing either. Here you have individuals who have impressive ministries, actively serving in the church, but they don't actually care about what God thinks. They actually care to do what God has commanded. Perhaps they're like the false leaders of 2 Thessalonians 2 9. If you've got a pen, write that down, look it up later. We're told that their miracles come from the devil to deceive people. There is a sort of miraculous ministry, impressive ministry in the name of Jesus that he comes from the demons. Perhaps more broadly, they're like the people of Israel in Isaiah chapter 1. If you know that, again, look it up later. Here are people who are busy at church. They, they turn up, they bring their sacrifices, they're all about churchy things, and then they go home and they commit adultery, and they steal, and they murder, and they're full of vice. And God uh, was angry at them, and Jesus says... Your evildoers. Such religion, which is outwardly, formally religious, uh, which calls itself Christian, but which lacks the commitment to God's ways that this sermon demands, such people are false. They're not believers. And so it wouldn't be a surprise, would it, if Gandhi had met people like those uh, who call themselves Christians. All he saw was people dragging Jesus' name through the mud. They're just not interested in doing what Jesus offers. <coughs> These people do many things in the name of Christ, but they're not willing to do the will of God. And so Christ will not recognize them as his own. Do you see? It's not, it's not enough to know that Jesus is Lord, it's not enough to be busy at church. If that's all you have in your Christianity, beware. That's not true Christianity. To be a Christian is to be in a relationship with Jesus. We saw we in the Beatitudes, right back at the beginning of our series. It was to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be like Jesus. It was to be salty, lighty people. It was to be little lights to Jesus' big sunlight. And we saw even last week, it was to be on the narrow way. Jesus lays down the path for us and says, go there, follow me. Real discipleship looks like doing the will of the Father. Not perfectly, because we can't do perfectly. But that's got to be our heart's commitment. It's got to be where we're going. Uh, Would would I, would you rather be the popular, uh, charismatic, dramatic, uh, miracle-laden ministry worker who is known all over the world, but whose heart is far from God's? Or would you rather be the unknown, undramatic, regular Joe Christian uh, whose life is unremarkable to everyone except Christ, who recognises you as somebody who walks on the narrow way. So if you're here as somebody looking into Christian things and you've had a bad experience, and many of us have, with people who call themselves Christians who have no interest in Christ, you have to look past those people because Jesus says they're not mine. In fact, it's best to look past all of us, whether we're Christians or not, and look at Jesus and see him For he is the luminous centre of history and his teaching is utterly compelling. I think that's what we found in this series. I've been struck by it, I'm sure you have as well. And that's really important for our next point, you see. Because Jesus commands us to build our life on the rock which is his words, verses 24 to 27. So where are you in the crowd this morning? Seriously, where are you? Make a decision in your own mind where you think you are. Am I a disciple at Jesus' feet? Am I in the middle of the crowd? Am I at the back of the crowd, prepared to throw things? If you want to throw things, please wait till after the sermon. See, Jesus is about to put you on the spot. He's going to put all of us on the spot. Perhaps some of us here have not made a choice to follow Christ, but you've heard enough in the Sermon on the Mount to have some clarity about What it means to follow Christ. And Jesus wants to call you. Perhaps you're resisting making that decision. And Jesus says, don't. Get through the narrow gate. Perhaps you've seen the lives of loved ones or friends who have been changed by becoming Christians. And you find that compelling. It's attractive because they really have become salty, lighty people. Perhaps there's others of us here we Christians for a long time and we've become a little lazy, a little apathetic about striving to walk along the way. We're in danger of falling off the way because we're not watching the path carefully. Perhaps others are going great guns and praise God for that. We love God's word and we want to walk in Jesus' ways every day. Pray that still continues. Every one of us still is faced by Jesus' words here. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine... You see? Have you heard Jesus' words? You've got to make a decision then. Everyone who hears these words of mine... No, just hearing is not enough. Just like saying you're a Christian isn't enough, hearing is not enough. Jesus says you're going to build. You're going to choose to build your life on something. What are you going to build on? Build on the rock? Or are you going to build on the sand? Take the wise person, verse 24. Uh, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. okay, We're back in the realm of doing again, do you see? I don't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Okay. Not enough to know the Father's will. You've got to be passionate to do it. You'll strive to do it. If you're that person, you're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. This builder wisely chooses a solid foundation. Imagine what it would be like in the first century to to get a rock and think, I'm going to build a house on this. What are your tools? You don't have massive construction uh, tools. You know, you've got a chisel and a hammer. It's hard work, isn't it? Big decision to build your house on the rock. Some of us here might be trying to decide, do I build my life on Jesus or not? It's a big decision. Might mean some changes. But this guy, he works hard. And the building is secure. Verse 25, it's clear, isn't it? Because the building is built on the rock, because it has a firm foundation, it stands. In fact, it's it's fun because there's, there's so much falling in this passage. Have you noticed The rain is falling. It falls hard. It's a torrential downpour. It's like, maybe not a hurricane, but it's that kind of idea. You know, the worst sort of rainstorms. You don't go out in those. You know, the sort of rainstorms where the raindrops hit your head and it hurts. You know, it's that kind of thing that's going on here. The wind is literally falling on the house as well. There's a lot of falling. But the house doesn't fall. I think of the worst imaginable weather. And the word streams here is a plural and it means rivers. It's, it's kind of like building a house in the, in the dry riverbed. Uh, down between the big rock faces of the ravine. And, and the storm has come and, and the, the waters rush down the mountain. And they, they rush through these dry riverbeds. Flash floods. Normally dry, but when the rains come, they fill up really fast. Rushing rivers. You think uh, Cumbria a couple of months ago. You know, rivers bursting their banks. Swallowing whole towns. Destroying bridges. That sort of thing. It's a ferocious, horrible, uh, howling winds, pulsing flood waters. And the house stands. Plenty of places didn't stand in the floods actually in Cumbria, did they? But this house stands. Or take the foolish person, verse 26. See, sand is an easy surface, isn't it? Very easy to prepare. I mean, you just run your hand over it there, it's flat, let's build. It's dead easy but the outcome is very different. And to build your house on the sand is to build your house on the wide road of verse 13. It is to be the person who's not interested in Jesus' words. It's to hear Jesus' words and ignore them. At verse 22, it is to be a fool, an idiot. Rude to say it, isn't it? But if that's the choice you're making, you're an idiot. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Same weather, totally different outcome. Here it is, the house that falls, and the fall is total. The foundations are washed away, the walls are shaken, the roof is smashed with uh, with this rainstorm, and it's a total loss, isn't it? There's nothing left, just washed away. And the picture's easy enough to understand, isn't it? Uh, if you know the flood is coming... If you know that you're building your house in an area where flash floods happen, you'd be mad not to build your house with great foundations. And Jesus says, why would you make such a foolish choice with your life? But Jesus is pleading with his audience. It's the last thing he's saying before he wraps up his sermon. And he is pleading with his audience. He's pleading with us this morning, every one of us. Please, be wise. Don't be a fool. Make the wise choice. Uh, The word uh, build here, the verb build here, is is used in the literal sense of building a house. But the parable is a metaphor, isn't it? And it's a word, actually, that comes up lots in the New Testament for building up people. It's the word for edify. We build the church. We build up each other uh, through uh, preaching the gospel to each other, Ephesians 4. In other words, it's very clearly a parable of building your life. What are you building your life on? You're going to build your life on something and the choice you've got is build your life on Jesus' words or anything else. So what are you building your life on? Or if you're a Christian here this morning, what are you tempted to move off Jesus and build your life on? What are the temptations for you? What do you hold on to? What do you dream about? What do you worry about? Perhaps you... Uh, you cling to your uh, intelligence, your earning power, your family's reputation. Uh, perhaps you cling to the fact that you've you got secure, you've got money in the bank, you've got a, a good house. You've got a good reputation at work. You, you know, everything's going well. Those things are things you can leverage for security. Can those things carry the weight of your life, the hope you've put in them? If the diagnosis comes, I found out uh, just on Friday that the eight-year-old son of a, an old friend of mine has just been diagnosed with leukaemia. Where's, where's your hope? Theirs is in Jesus. And they're rejoicing despite suffering. When the tragedy comes, when uh, you lose your job, or there's a crisis in the family, or perhaps you lose your home, or you know, maybe like Job, you lose all of those things all at once. Can the thing you're trusting in bear the weight of the hope you've placed in it? Or will your whole house collapse when the combination of circumstances crash against it? Of course, we may well be secured. It may be that we all survive to old age without tragedy. And we praise God if that's the case. But even then, what is Jesus really talking about here? He is promising that we will all die. And we'll all face him in judgment. That's his teaching here. The greatest teacher who's ever been. His teaching here is you'll face him in judgment. You're either in or you're out. So when you face Christ on that day, will he say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy all of my privileges in the presence of the Father forever. Or will he say to you, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer and cast us into the fire of verse 19. The decision which Christ implores us and commands us to make this morning has eternal (coughs) significance. And Christ is not demanding that we be perfect. Please don't hear me saying that. I think there's some worried faces out there at the moment. The decision is not to be perfect or to fail. The decision is to build your life on Jesus' words, to let him be the guide, let him command the way. Let him be the centre Let his words dictate where you put your feet. And we'll stumble, we'll fall, we'll all mess up. Even today. Jesus is not demanding perfection, he's demanding a decision, a direction, an attitude to him. An attitude that says, God's word matters to me. It matters that I honour him. He's my father and I want to do his will. When you make the decision to follow Christ... If you've met Christians who who aren't like that, they're not really Christians. There is a true church. Let me give you one more quote before we end. It's quite a famous one from a a guy called James Allen, who I don't know who he is, but this quote is pretty famous from the end of the 19th century. Let me read. How is it that Jesus uh, transforms the history of the world? Nearly 2,000 years ago, in, in an obscure village, a child was born of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked as a carpenter until he was 30. Then for three years he became an itinerant preacher. This man never went to college or seminary, <coughs> never wrote a book, never held a public office, never had a family or owned a home, never put his foot inside a big city or travelled more than 200 miles from where he grew up. And though he never did any of these things that are usually, usually accompany greatness, throngs of people followed him. He had no credentials but himself. He was crucified, died, buried, and after three days he rose from the dead. Nineteen centuries have come and gone. And today the risen Lord Jesus Christ is the central figure of the human race. On our calendars, his birth divides uh, the whole of human history into two eras. One day of every week is set aside in remembrance of him. Our two most important holidays celebrate his birth and his resurrection. And on church steeples around the world, his cross has become the symbol of victory over sin and death. This one man's life has furnished the theme of more songs, books, poems and paintings than any other person or event in history. Thousands of colleges, hospitals, orphanages and other institutions have been founded in honour of this one who gave his life for us. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the governments that ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned have not changed the course of history as much as this one solitary life. How is it that this one solitary life has transformed history? Is it simply that he impresses people like Gandhi and Einstein, that that like them and millions of others, we look at Jesus and say, he's a remarkable teacher, and then go back to living our lives the way we want to and completely ignore what he's actually said? Well, no. No the way Christ has turned human history and every civilization he has touched upside down is through Christians. Regular people who have themselves been turned upside down. Christians who have gone from being darkness to light. As Christ has claimed people one at a time for himself and has united them to his church and has transformed them by a vision of his beauty And has empowered them and equipped them by his spirit. So he has unleashed a force for good. That has overturned the world. Real Christianity. Begins when we make a decision. To leave the darkness behind. The darkness both of our ignorance of God and ignorance of our lives. And turn to the light. To accept that our old idols and our old ways of living are not of God. It begins when we enter through the gate and walk along the path. Of course, Jesus hasn't told us in the Sermon on the Mount about the work of the Holy Spirit in equipping us and strengthening us for that path. He hasn't told us about his death in our place to redeem us from our sin that has separated us from God. He hasn't told us about the fact that there is a darkness that still goes on, that we will stumble on the path. That's all to come later in the book. But Christ has shown us the posture of the true believer, hasn't he? The one who Christ himself will welcome on the last day. The true believer delights in Jesus and longs to be like him. Recognise that he's the light and we want to be lights like him. Delighting to call God Father and seeking first the kingdom, the things that matter to God. Knowing that God's got everything else taken care of for us. Delighting to live in humble submission to God's ways. Knowing that the kingdom is ours. He's promised it and one day we'll get to enjoy it forever. So here we walk as pilgrims. Walking in his ways and delighting to do it. Jesus isn't interested in showy religion. Showy religion is a false religion. He's interested in the daily faithful submission of his people to his words. Uh, the willingness to walk where Christ has gone before us and uh, to live as he calls us to. So friends, let's turn our hearts, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, and commit ourselves to submitting to the words of our king. Let's be true believers. Uh, one step after another. Today let's walk on the path. And as we do that, as a church together, Let's see Jesus turn Elstead upside down. Let's see him transform our culture here as he has done in so many other places through his church. Let me call on you, please, in Jesus' name to build your life on the rock and nowhere else. Shall we pray? Our loving Lord Jesus, we praise you for the warning of your word, that you are the the one who decides who's in and who's out. And you've given us the method, the means to follow you, to walk in your ways, to to love you, to honour the Father, to do his will. I guess for many of us here, that's been our life's ambition for a long time. Please would you renew us to take those steps to walk in your ways to love you above all things help us please to let go of the idols that we've clung to the false hopes that are just sand and will be washed away in the storms help us to instead cling to your words knowing that you have prepared an unshakable place for us and I pray so much for any here who haven't yet made a decision to follow you please please would you Reach out and touch their hearts. Change people this morning. Draw them into your true church. And help us together to transform our area by loving our neighbours and speaking for you. For your name's sake. Amen. Amen.